0: Really thankful that Paul's given me the opportunity to speak here this morning. I I want to share with you what God put on my heart and how it all came about. Uh, but I uh, the way I normally like to preach. I had a tremendous pastor who is the uh, who is the theological professor now at the university down in Oklahoma. And uh, one of the things that he shared with me, and this is what the, sort of the template that I have always used for my, my messages. I we we moved in 1993. By the way, y'all don't know a whole lot about me. Uh, I came from West Virginia, a little country. Some of you may even know that already. I came from West Virginia, a little country road, five miles outside of a little small town, and and God dramatically worked in my life. And when I was at the age of 18, and uh, accepted the call in ministry, and then from there, um, felt like that God wanted me to go to Cincinnati to a Bible college there. And I went to that Bible college, and uh, I showed—I didn't know a soul, didn't know any anyone, didn't have any financial support at all from my, my parents, and I was all—all all alone, all by myself. You know, I was just doing what, you know, I felt like God wanted me to do. You know, and, and so I—I I'm, I'm, go there, and uh, of course, the second day I'm there, I meet Valerie, and and, and uh, while I'm there, of course, we get married 11 months later, but. Uh, while I'm there, uh, they said one of the very first things, they had inner-city missions downtown in Cincinnati. And I thought, well, wow, that's pretty good. That's that's where I, that sounds like where I want to be. <laughs> that's a long way from a country road in West Virginia to downtown on Skid Row, which is Vine Street in Cincinnati. And I spent a lot of time down there for about a year and a half. And uh, and, uh you know, I, I really I really didn't know a whole lot about the Bible when I left home. I mean, I had just gotten saved. I had just gone to Bible college, literally, just in a very short, brief span of time. Now, I had read some of the Bible, but I, I didn't know a whole lot about it. So I was kind of in a learning process. When I went to pastor uh, in Illinois, I, I remember going out there, and I called my pastor because I've been there about three or four months, and I I realized that now in the church where I was a part of, you preach on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night also. Well, I, did, I was doing three different things, but, but uh, I, can, I can tell you if any of you have ever spoken, you think it's easy to do, if any of you have ever spoken in front of people, when you've done it for about three or four months and you've done it three times a week, that often, it doesn't take very long and you run out of things to say. And uh, I, was, I didn't know what to do, so I called him up and asked him, I said, please help. And he shared with me something that he had told me before that I really wasn't paying attention to. And this is what he told me. He said, he follows this outline. This is generally 90% of the time whenever I speak, I follow this outline. And that is, uh, number one is, uh, what is the human need? You usually try to find things connected to real life things that you're going in your life around the world that we can all relate to. And uh, what is the need? And then the second thing is, what does God have to say about that? and then uh, take a look at the scripture and see what how we can connect those two real life with what God has to say from God's word. The third thing is is what can I do to allow God to empower me? What steps what practical things can I do to be able to allow God to work in my life? Today is not following that template and in fact today I'm going to tell you that I'm going to take you on a pretty wild ride and you really might need your bible because i kind of i'm, I'm going to go all over the place now i typically don't like that because uh, personally because uh, I, I don't like going all over the place particularly if you're not in the word now i want to say something about that too because i have a lot to say today and i, I want to try to squeeze it in it's 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 imperative that you read god's word It's it's imperative that you read it not to obtain information from it but that you can but that you can get a connectedness to god that that God is speaking to you from His Word, so that your spirit is is uh, affected. That your your not your ears, but your heart is hearing what God is saying passionately, saying to you, because He is saying it intentionally, on purpose, directly to us. I mean, I, I, it's it's important for you to be in God's Word. Now, I'll tell you that uh, the type of preaching that I was talking about. I'm going to tell you what. This is my experience. This has been my personal experience. Whenever you preach the type of message following the outline that I mentioned and you're talking about God's word connected to real life stuff, I have seen where people who are not, you can almost tell from a pastors, anybody who's spoken in front can tell you when they're looking out. You can tell people who are, like Dr. Phil said, there are people who get it and people who don't. You can almost tell looking out when there's people who really connect with and are excited about what God is saying. And other people who are sitting there thinking, oh, well, yeah, you know, I don't know. You know, I thought my pastor was one of the greatest, still to this day, is one of the greatest, most dynamic speakers I've ever heard yet. I've invited people who I've told about to come and hear him. And they're sitting there saying, they walk out, they say, like that, which is puzzling to me. It used to be puzzling to me. Dr. Elmer Towns, who is a Southern Baptist, he used to he called Mr. Sunday School, he taught down at Liberty University, he, uh, he was talking in his book about the 10 great movements of God. He was referring to the great Asbury revival of 1970. Those of you who have Kentucky roots are probably familiar with hearing about that great revival. It only lasted really about a week. but It spread considerably over a period of states. And Elmer, uh, Dr. Henry Blackaby, who also wrote the book um, Experiencing God, he said, and I heard him say this, that uh, one of the reasons why he believes that that revival was so short-lived, that movement of God was so short-lived was because it wasn't connected to the reading of the Word. And I can tell you, when God moves in your life, when you're young like you guys over here and you committing yourself to Christ, you're going to youth, youth camp and God moves and you're growing up and you're facing the beginning out starting in your life and you're reading things like book Radical, which is, Radical, which is a great thing. And, and when you're doing all that kind of stuff, you... You need to be in God's Word so that your heart can hear and God can direct and move upon you, so that when you hear a, a, a dynamic message that speaks from God's Word to you, your heart will echo with it in a resounding Amen. Not, not verbally, but that your heart is just responding in cadence with the voice of God as he, hears you, as he speaks to you. Now, I want to share, now I'm going to talk about a lot of things. Like I said, today's not one of those type of messages and you, and that's why I say there's I'm gonna be kind of all over the place, but it's all connected, every bit of it. Now, if you knew me very well, you would know that I love I love uh, those big whiteboards. I would uh I w- I was in a motel once, uh, remember about, about we were in a conference room and had a big had they had this uh panels on on hangers where these things would I, I love this. I can turn around the other way and y'all can stare at me. <laughs> And it had these big panels, and it would slide like big panels on the wall. And you you could, it had several layers of these whiteboards. I walked in there, and I I saw these whiteboards and these dry erase markers, and I thought, wow, this is cool. I love it, because I I pulled all those things out, stretched them out, because I like to draw things in circles and connect it all together so it draws a visual picture so that everybody can see exactly what I'm talking about. Well, I don't have a whiteboard today, so you're going to need to mentally follow me along with all this. I'm really going to talk about the communion, why we do the communion. I know, Robin, you know, you mentioned that a couple years ago, you said it in passing. You may not remember that, but, but it was about teaching the importance of the communion. Now, I want to give you a lot of background to go back to the very beginning uh, in the Old Testament of where this starts. But in order to do that, I need to start with, uh, first... Before we go any farther, let, let's pray, and I wanna, I'm going to skip the passage, the beginning verse that I had for you, and it doesn't affect you there, John, but Father, we are thankful today to be here in this place. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, guide our lives, O Lord of heaven, creator of, creator of everything that we know and everything that exists. Lord, I pray that you would be exalted in our lives and that you would get the glory from, 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 from our lives as we walk with you and that you would use us as a reflection, that your life would shine into the light of others' life of others and they would be drawn to you. Lord, I just ask that you alone would get the praise and the glory and the honor for everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, few years ago my 1997 my sister-in-law was getting married and uh, now if you Mike and uh, Brooke you and Cory and I mean Rory and uh, Donna you came to uh, one of their weddings that we have and if you they could tell you from being at our weddings that uh, it's a pretty big deal and we don't have 10-minute services and then a five-hour long reception at our weddings to me, we do the most important things when the most important things happen, and that is the wedding ceremony. And wedding ceremony, if I'm not mistaken, Brandon and Lydia, if I, which is the last one we did, yours lasted about an hour and a half. Because we do a lot, but everything we do in it means something. Every part of it. We have several people involved in it, so ministers and. But in 1997, my sister-in-law was getting married. And and uh, me being uh, in the family and being in the ministry, they included me in it. But there really wasn't a part for me to do. And the only part that was the most convenient part for us because to do was I was supposed to do the ring ceremony part. And uh, in the tradition that you know, my wife comes from, uh, people don't wear They don't wear wedding rings or everything. And so some of the ministers, they feel uncomfortable doing it. So I got nominated to be the one who do the ring ceremony part of it. So here I am. uh, I'm going to do it. And I'm thinking in my mind about passage of Scripture. It talks about a ring that I can use because, quite frankly, I don't don't really care for the, you know, it's round, it's never-ending, and it's gold, it's pure, and all that kind of stuff. Maybe you had that done at your wedding. If you did, that's okay. It's not my thing. And I don't really like it, but when I was thinking about a ring, the only thing I could think of was uh, the, prodigal the prodigal son, and the uh, prodigal son, and he came back to his father's house, and he, they placed a ring on his finger, and I was so in some sense I was trying to figure out some sort of symbolism to all that, and uh, really to be honest with you, I made most of it up because there really wasn't there was not a lot of history behind all of it, and. I felt bad about it. I really felt, (laughs) I felt, (laughs) I felt kind of embarrassed to be honest with you afterwards. I was like, I don't ever want to do another one of those ring ceremony things again. (laughs) And, uh, so when it came time for uh, Leah and Cole's wedding, they asked me, again, they had, they had older ministers in our family do the main parts of the wedding ceremony. So again, I got, Asked to do a smaller part, my first response was, "I'm not doing a ring, <laughs> I'm not doing a ring ceremony." And so I thought, "I will do, I will do a communion." And he thought, oh, "That sounds pretty good." And there was a reason for that, and I'll tell you that here in a moment. So I did the communion cer- cer- ceremony for him, and uh, when I did that part for him, uh, what I'm going to share with you today, really. One of the parts of it today made a, a big impression on Cole, and, and so much so I shared it with Cole long before their wedding that it made an impression on him enough that he made, not because of me, not because of me, just about just because of the truth of, of what what it means, and I'll tell you that in a little bit, made such an impression on him that Cole wrote a song about it, had it copyrighted, recorded it, and sang it to Leah at their Reception. It. <coughs> What's that? Yeah, they played. He didn't play it, but he had it played over the speakers while they were, you know, embracing at the reception. Now, nobody else there knew really what the song was or what the words were except the two of them. And really, quite frankly, that's <laughs> that's all that mattered. And I'll tell you that a little bit more about that, as I said here in just a moment. A little bit later on, a couple, three years ago, Brandon and Lydia are getting married. So they asked me. Now, at this point, I had, I had gotten sick. Many of you know I'd gotten sick. I'd been off work for a year. This was three years ago, and I was barely even able to walk. And I still struggle because up here today, you know, walking up, I need help, and I have to concentrate on walking more than you do. You just do it naturally. I have to think about it. And uh, so they asked me to do it. And I, my, my main concern was being able to walk Lydia down the aisle. And, uh, but I had an advantage that year because I was off an entire year. Valerie gave me one assignment. My assignment was to stay in the upstairs bedroom. And she bought a table. And my son gave me a computer. And gave me, got me a light. My assignment was to stay in that room and read, read God's word. And that's what my job was. Well, I had a lot of time. And it was amazing. I mean, I, I love it because I was just really absorbing and taking stuff in. And uh, the more I was reading and getting into stuff and Googling this and putting together pieces and looking at God's word. And uh, I mean, it, it, it was amazing. And so when when it came time to do their wedding, I did the communion service again. And at this point, I had... God had given me the opportunity to see something far deeper into what the communion is about, where its roots come from. I want to go. I want to go to Exodus, and I want to read you. You know, you're thinking Exodus, Old Testament stuff, right? Do you know? And you know, Mike, we've talked about this before. You know, what Bible? What Bible was it that Jesus and Paul and all the apostles used? What was it? it was the Old Testament. That is God's word. That's what they used. That's what they had. And quite frankly, I don't really understand the New Testament only people because they miss a lot of stuff by not saying the Old Testament is important. It is extraordinarily important. Particularly this verse. It's in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. There are four things mentioned here. Now, I've read this a long time ago, and I have to be honest with you that when I read it, I just wrote down a little note beside of it and it says uh, it says uh, the i wills of the lord and I did not I did not know <laughs> I did not know when I wrote that several years ago what it means and the impact of these two verses right here. Let's read that. Exodus chapter 6 verse 6. And I want you to notice the four things. Therefore say, therefore say to the Israelites the Lord saying the Lord saying to Moses, "I am the Lord and I I I, number one, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Number two, I will free you from being slaves to them. And I will, I will, number three, I will redeem you. Now, if you do get excited about this, I don't blame you because it's kind of odd how the language reads here. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. If you can put the pictures of two and two together. I, mean, I don't know that it that, means that, but it's, it's really isn't it really odd that it... Those two things there go together. And the fourth thing, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand. I'm not going to read any further than that. That's an amazing passage of scripture. That passage of scripture is the foundation for, and you don't have to put this up there just yet. Is the foundation for the Jewish Seder, which is the ritual the, that the Jews follow have followed since the Passover, which was 3,500 years ago. The longest, not continual because it's had some breaks from time to time in the captivity and, and uh, different different events along history, but for it is the longest running celebration of any of any sort in human history. Passover and it's based on this these two verses of scripture now in a little bit it was not right now but we're going to bring that up I want to show before we get there though I want to I want to connect some other things so that you will see the power of of, of a covenant that exists when it comes to God's word and uh, what I talked about in both of their weddings and uh, the first one is in is in Genesis chapter 15, and you can go ahead and put that one up there, in Genesis chapter 15. uh, Now this is a pretty significant passage of scripture. In Genesis chapter 15, this is the Old Covenant, by the way. You all have heard the term the Old Covenant. Perhaps you didn't know exactly what the Old Covenant was. And I'm going to confess to you that I, I always have had, you know, over the course of time, I always have had a number, you know, a few passages here and there that are kind of difficult maybe to to, to kind of work through the thought process of. And I, I will tell you that this is one of them. And it's one of them because uh, all the language is not quite exactly as clear or because it requires it requires a little bit of background behind it to tell you what, it, what goes into what takes place here in this particular passage of Scripture. And you need to know the background. I mean, it's important. Now, you can read over it as I go through it. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to summarize it. And uh, forgive me if I don't get all the animals correct as I go through all of it. I don't have time to read it because I got a lot more to share with you. But in this passage of scripture, God comes to God comes to um, Abram, and He changes His name. And, and the Lord uses a different name that He has never used before, and He calls He changes Abram's name to Abraham. And he changes his own name to El Shaddai, which is the Lord God Almighty. The first time it's ever used anywhere. He's coming to him and tells him this. This is 25 years after he's already made a promise to Abram that he would have a son who would be his own firstborn. His own firstborn. 25 years before, and all 25 years are going by. I don't know. uh, You know, we really think that everything's got to happen right now in our culture I mean we got computers remember when dial-up was around and you'd click on dial-up and remember the little thing that used to come across the bottom anybody remember that little thing that used to come across you sit there and you just you know like the what was that little thing that you know uh, Mario you know sitting there like that waiting for the little thing to come over for the screen to pop up you know Now, now we expect to just if it doesn't happen right now oh hey something's wrong with my computer if it doesn't pop up instantly. But uh, we think it should happen so quick. I mean, I could tell you a couple of different passages in the Old Testament where things don't happen quite so quick. One is with Daniel. And Daniel is when you, the things that you remember most about Daniel's, the significance of Daniel's life. There's a, it's only an eight chapter book. There's a 40 year gap in there between events in the front part and events in the back part. There's sometimes that God just takes time and circumstances and events to work in ways in our life that may not be as quick as what we would hope that they would be, and particularly when it comes to Abram and receiving the promise of God that he would have a firstborn son. He didn't have it, so his wife Sarah, you know, they she offers her handmaiden and have another son, and it causes a big mess that we're still dealing with today. That just starting just snowballed and got bigger and bigger and bigger and finally God comes to Abram he's 100 years old, Sarah's 99 he comes to him and he's talking to him again about the promise that he made to him and the promise that he made to him he says to him, at the beginning of it he says, and this is interesting, he's already made the promise so he says, you are no longer Abram you are now Abraham, I am the Lord God Almighty what can the Lord God Almighty do? he can do anything he can do anything he wants to do and so here he is, he changes his name, and then he, he, he makes a covenant with him. And the covenant with him is he tells him, basically, he tells him, I want you to take these animals, I want you to take a bull, a bull and a... Uh, I, want you to take a I want you to take a heifer, a goat, a ram, and along with a dove and a young pigeon... This is in verse uh, you can scroll on down there a little bit, John. This is down around verse nine. Well, right about verse nine. bring me three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, a young ram, turtle, dove, two pigeons. He said, I want you to bring those to me, and he cut them in half, and he made a trough. And he laid half the animals on either side of this trough, so that their blood of each of them would flow together and mingle together. And flow in, in this trough, blood will be resting in the trough. Now, later on, it says in Genesis that Abram, Abraham, fended off, you know, animals and everything trying to come all day long. You know, he's fending off all the animals, and finally, he falls asleep. When he falls asleep, he has a vision. And then God does what He does. Now, before I get to that part, I want to tell you what the tradition that happened was. In the old in the Old Testament, in this tradition, if if two people are buying something, if you own, I just picked Michelle, you own that cup right there in your hand. Okay, I want to buy that cup. You we agree. You we agree to a price. Now you're the owner. You're the greater because you have it, and I'm the lesser because I don't have it. So I make an agreement with you to buy that cup off of you now because I'm the lesser I would take these animals I would split them in half make a trench and their blood would flow together and I the lesser of the two parties would take off my sandals and I would walk in the blood of these animals signifying that if I don't keep my promise to you to pay to pay you what I owe you for that cup May it be done to me as it is to these animals that are split in half. Everybody, you, you get that? So here, Abraham, Abraham is. He's, God's made a promise that He will fulfill His word, His promise of giving him a firstborn son. Again, didn't change anything. He still made the promise. You can read. There's a lot more to it than that. You can read that. and just, It's an amazing story. But it says when he went asleep, when when he fell asleep it says then and when the sun had set and darkness had fallen a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared appeared and passed between the pieces anybody would anybody in here have a guess who the smoking pot with a blazing the blazing torch is anybody it's god it's the presence of God himself. And it says that the presence of God, the smoking pot with a flaming torch, the burning bush, you know what I mean? I mean the, the, the flame between the, the, arc, the... I mean, the presence of God was there and Abraham saw the presence of God pass between the pieces. Do you know what that means? That signifies to us that not the lesser... Of the two, took off. I didn't take off my sandals to walk through the blood to signify that if I don't keep my word to pay you for that, you took off. You passed between the pieces, saying that if I don't pay you, you will pay the price. And that's what—that's the covenant. That's what God. God made a promise that if I don't keep my word, He will fix it and take care of it. And he did exactly that. Now we know he did that because Jesus died on the cross. That's what he did. That was, Jesus, that was God's payment to the contract that he made. He signed the contract. 1,500 years later, he paid it. That's the old covenant. But there's something changed, though, in the middle toward the end of that when Jesus came along it wasn't just when Jesus died I want to tell you though it was when Jesus came I wish I had more time to get into all this here with you but John if you go ahead and pull that Seder up just this is an online Jewish Seder from the Jewish Federation and I'm not going to read all of it this is the guidebook. If you can, just flip down through it and then go back to the top again. I just want everybody to see that there are exactly words. It's just a whole list of things. Then you can go back to the top. This is, a, this is the order of a Jewish ceremony and how it's, or how, it's, uh, how it's all conducted. It contains all the parts of what I'm talking about. I want to talk to you about, before I deal with that, I want to talk to you about the second thing that I shared when I did Brandon... Uh, Leah and Cole's wedding. It was talking about a, a marriage covenant, a marriage contract. Now, most of you know that when Mary became pregnant with a child, that, you know, she wasn't married. Well, not married in the sense that we think of being married. She wasn't, she was engaged, but she wasn't, they hadn't officially married, okay? Now, and there was some question with Joseph that he was going to put her away privately and of course the Lord intervened and in all that why why do you think that that was why, why what would be such a big deal I mean if you just were engaged to somebody if I just said okay you know Valerie will you marry me and she says yes they say oh we're engaged and then something happens they say oh, okay well that's it we're kaput you know you know may, maybe you bought him a ring maybe you didn't maybe she gives it back maybe she flushes it down the toilet I don't know you know, I mean, that, that's kind of how it is now, but it wasn't that way then. Back then, when you were going to get married to someone, say if uh, Valerie and I were, were, I'll just use Lee and Cole since it was their wedding and I was talking about because this is exactly what I told them. I said, they're getting married. So in order for them to be engaged, the father's... Leah's father, which is me, and Cole's father, which is Kevin, who's been here before and not here today. But the two of us, we, the fathers, would get together and we would talk about the bride price. How much that Cole is going to pay me for the loss of my daughter. Only he doesn't have any say so in it. We do, the two fathers. So we're talking about the bride price. And we agree on a price. We shake hands. Uh, that's the price. We pour, a cup of, we pour a cup. We hand it to, to him. Because he's agreed to the price. He hands it to her. And when she takes it. And she drinks out of the cup. She is saying that I agree. And I will give my life to you. hands the the cup back to him and he drinks out of the cup saying that I agree and I give my life to you and I want to tell you what when that happens when that happens they are as good as married and Mary and Joseph had already done that and that's what the issue was about when it came to whether or not they would get a divorce or put her away privately or whatever because they were were married or they hadn't consummated it but they were as good as this because an agreement had already ma- been made and that's what I shared with Cole and did it at their wedding and and uh, he wrote a song about it and it, perhaps sometime he'll play it for you but now the third thing here I'm off a year and I have time to look deeper into all this and I'm reading and I go back and I'm reading about this Jewish Seder thing right here there are a number of fascinating things about all this, uh, this Remember Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and 7? I will bring you out. I will set you free. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, and I will take you unto myself. Those represent the four cups. There's four of them, not just one. We take one communion cup. There's actually four. There are four communion cups in the Jewish Seder. The first the first one of those is... Uh, You can bring the seder, you know, the seder, the first one of those is, uh, I'm going to turn my page so I don't forget anything here. The first one of those is, is when they were, uh, they were having the, uh, the first cup, before you have the first cup, you sanctify the day, and that is talking about, I will, I will set you free, and they would have a, the first ceremonial hand-washing. In the first ceremony, hand washing, and then you would take some parsley and some salt water, which I represented the, you know, uh, I, I can't rem- I can't remember the symbolism of the parsley and the salt water, but they would do the parsley and the salt water, and then they would take and uh, they, they would have at the end of the first the first phase of it, they would celebrate by taking the first cup of the communion, which represented I will set you free. Then then came time for the second cup. Now, the second cup in, uh, was uh, there was a second ritual hand washing. I'm sorry, not, not, not that one. There was a telling of the story. The telling of the story, you can scroll down to page six. I want you to see these questions. These are the questions, you'll see four questions. There are four questions right up there. The youngest youngest member of a household would ask these questions to the oldest member of the household. And of these questions, they're all dealing with, uh, on on all other nights we eat bread or matzah, on this night, why only matzah? And it allows for the older person of the household to tell the story of how we came out of Egypt. The second question on all the other nights, we eat herbs or vegetables of any kind. On, on this night, why bitter herbs? The bitter herbs are horseradish. They eat horseradish in the Jewish Seder because it's horseradish. How many of y'all like horseradish or you've had, uh, what's that green stuff that we what,
1: huh?
0: Wasabi. Wasabi. Y'all like wasabi? You ever had wasabi peas? Man, I love those things.
1: <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs>
0: Have you ever had wasabi, horseradish, anything like that? I mean, what does it do to you? Well, it just opens up your sinuses. If you eat enough of it, it'll bring tears to your eyes. And that was the purpose of the horseradish, the bitter herbs. It was to it was to remind you of the sorrow of the death of the firstborn and the pain of slavery in Egypt. On all other nights, the third question, on all other nights we do n- we do not dip even once. On this night, why do we dip twice? The fourth question, on all other nights we eat our meals in any manner on this night, why do we sit around the table in a reclining position? I mean, these are all questions. I mean, I'm not going to get into answering all these because i got, I got a lot more to say, but you can look in the Jewish Seder. Just Google Jewish Seder, and you'll, there's a lot of information out there. But uh, you can go back up to the top again. And the second during that period of time in the second part of the Jewish Seder, they are talking about the history of all of it, Oh, yeah, go back, go down to page 10. Now, this one I did not do for your wedding, by the way. I didn't do for your wedding, and I, I saw this the other day, and I thought, man, I, I want to do this at church. This is so cool. In fact, I was thinking this is so cool that I would like to do it some, I, I wish I, we could have figured out some way to do it for an, in a New Testament version, from a Christian perspective of how you do this. Now, this is called the Dianu. Dienu means it would have been enough for us. That's what it means, you. Di- Everybody say this with me. It would have been enough for us. I mean, say, say it real loud like you mean it. It would have been enough. Now, just say it would have been enough. We're just going to do that. I'm going to read this to you. If God would have, this is all part of the second cup of telling this story about, of all this. If God would have taken us out of Egypt and not executed judgment upon them, If he would have executed judgment upon them and not upon their idols, if he would have judged their idols and not killed their firstborn, if he would have killed their firstborn and not given us their wealth, if he would have given us their wealth and not split the sea for us, say it louder. You ever ever just say it with conviction? It would have been enough. I'm feeling something. I feel this in here. I feel it because what if Jesus had only come as a baby in a manger? It would have been enough. It would have been enough. It would have been enough to fulfill the promise that he made back there when he he walked and he passed between the pieces. It would have been enough. What if he had only been a 12-year-old talking with the people in the temple and it would have been enough? What if he would have just what if he would have just preached a sermon in the mouth like you're all talking about and you're talking about Matthew? It would have been enough. What if he would have just told a story about, about the prodigal son? It would have been enough. What if he would have what if he would have been beaten and whipped? For our own iniquity. But not placed on the cross. I'm going to tell you what. It would have been enough. It would have been enough. It would have been enough. Dying you. The impact. The, the dynamic behind that. It is, 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 is means everything. For you and me. It affects our life in a way that, that calls us to a greater responsiveness than just a passivity of being of being nominal. It calls us to a greater degree of, of honor. Goodness sakes, I look at military people when you go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. And I haven't been there, but Valerie has, and I've watched videos of it. And they're standing with such tremendous respect and honor because they were giving honor to something so great we have something far greater than that and it is enough it's enough what if he promises salvation to us but nothing any more than that it is enough it's enough oh man Have you, ever, have you ever been? Have you ever been, where you have hit bottom? Have you ever been where you just needed God to move? You just needed to hear His voice. <laughs> you just needed something from Him, and you just got enough. You got what is sufficient. You know what sufficient? Do you know what it means to be sufficient? Sufficient means just enough, but nothing any more than that. I'm going to tell you what, who knows about sufficient? When Elijah was sitting at the, at, the, at the mouth of the cave and he thought he was the only one left and there were 7,000, he heard a still, small voice, was it enough or was it not enough? It was enough. <laughs> it was enough. Here's enough. That does not negate us from responsiveness of what Christ is asking of us. The reason I shared with you the marriage contract is it's a requirement between the two parties. They are promising, pledging, giving each other to one another. I want to talk a little bit more about this you you can take that off cuz i'm going to refer you can go back to the very top of the page <clears throat> i don't want you to be distracted by the rest of it <clears throat> i'm sorry i've lost my voice forgive me <clears throat> when when they were having the last the third cup of the Jewish seder you can look at the you know it's interesting jesus has jesus knew the Seder. He knew the ceremony. He knew all about it. In fact, he knew he was part of the temple worship when he read in Isaiah chapter 61 when he announced that he was the one who was the Christ and to people of his own hometown they are ready to throw him over a cliff. He knew all about all of it. And he had done all of it. So here we are at the third cup of we know that Jesus was at the third cup because if you take a look at all three of the all four of the Gospels, and you begin to look at the Seder, the order of the ceremony, you will see, you will see that that in this, <clears throat> you will see that in this. Uh <clears throat> I don't know if that will help, but thank you very much. You will see that uh, <clears throat> we know exactly where Jesus was in the upper room. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. In Matthew, I can't remember that verse, Matthew chapter 20 something. In Mark chapter 14, we know exactly where. If you, if you look at all of them, according to the Jewish Seder ceremony, we know exactly where Jesus was at the moment when he was talking about dying and who being betrayed and and all that. We know that because all the scripture tells us the parts of it. The parts of it are they said the third cup is when you have the meal. You have the meal, you have lamb, you have you have the vegetables, you have you have the matzah, the unleavened bread, you have and you have a list of the things that you eat as your meal. It says after meal or during the meal, if you read it. And it also tells us how far he doesn't go in the Jewish Seder. Because it tells us at the end of two of the, two of the passage in Matthew and also in Mark, it tells us that they they sang a hymn. Now, what is significant about those two things? Now, there's a third thing that also happens. Jesus does that is that is significantly different. That's in John's gospel. And in the gospel of John, it says that when it came to this time, which is the same time that the other, two, the other two are talking about, when it comes to this time, it says that Jesus took off his garment and he washed his disciples' feet. Y'all remember that? Everybody remember that passage of scripture? You read it and heard it in John. You've heard talk about Jesus washing his disciples' feet. You've probably heard of foot washing ceremonies. And a, a lot of people use it. I wish I didn't lose my voice because I have a lot of I want to say. A lot of people use it as servanthood, as servanthood type, type things. Yeah, thank you. A lot of people use it as servanthood type things, and uh, but I will tell you. Thank you, (laughs) appreciate Sometimes there just ain't enough water. (sighs) What did? Where did that come from? I don't remember. Sometimes there just aren't enough rocks. And that's where it came from. <coughs> and then, anyway, the third thing that happens is he, he is uh, washing the disciples' feet. Now, Peter objects to this. And I'm sure, when, y'all ever seen Leonardo da Vinci's painting of everybody around the, taking the Lord's Supper? Now, I don't know that da Vinci intended for this to happen, but when I look at that picture... And I see all of them reacting in disbelief. We're led to believe, I think, probably, that was the intention of Da Vinci, perhaps, that they were all responding to somebody betraying Jesus or about him talking about him dying, you know. But quite frankly, when I look at that picture, that's not what I think after seeing all this and after reading all this, connecting it to the Scripture and all this. That's not what I think. What I think is that they're all sitting around thinking, I think Jesus has flipped his lid because he ain't doing the Passover ceremony right because he's wanting to do a foot-washing ceremony where there's the second hand-washing ceremony and the, hey, hey, Jesus, you know, you're, hey, you know what, you're, you're not doing that right. And the reality is Jesus was changing the entire order. He did that in two, two particular things. One, he took this this, and he talked about them being servants. Now, so there's a lot to say about that and don't really have time. But you know what? A lot of people are under the impression, use this passage of, that we're supposed to do servant type thing. You know, go to the intersection and pass out free bottles of water. Those are great and wonderful things. I'm going to tell you what they are. But it's not talking about the heart of it. About what it is that's, that is about what jesus is talking about uh, that I'm going to get to when you talk when you read about the Dianu, d di- di- the di- new, di- di- new, when they were talking about them and they said it was enough it's like saying that you know you are enough and it's like being totally totally unrestricted completely given to be a servant in every way that Christ would be glorified the the other two things <coughs> was that uh Well, one of them that Jesus did differently was he poured one cup and he invited all of them to partake out of one single individual cup. It was his cup. See, before that, if you read the order of the Seder, it says that you poured a cup for every individual and one additional cup for Elijah. So that Elijah is honored there and so you take a cup in honor of Elijah, which is actually a little bit later on, but... But that's what you do. Jesus didn't do that. He poured one single cup and he invited them to dip in his, dip in his own cup. You know, the disciples had asked before in Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 10, when they were arguing about who's going to be on the right hand and left hand of Jesus, you know, when he comes into his kingdom. And he says, and he says you don't know what, what you're talking about, Jesus said. Can you drink of the cup that I drink with? And they all said, yeah, we can. And Jesus said, You have no idea what you're asking. In fact, that later on they would they would do that. In fact, one of them went and hanged himself, who was Judas Iscariot. Nine of ten of them were put to death, and only John himself was allowed to live on the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, and probably later or during that time, the Gospel of John. So, you know. This is what we're talking about. So it isn't. So so when you're when you're talking about taking the cup, when we take the cup, we are being we are looking at something far deeper. The response is that when we take the cup, that we are we are pledging ourselves to Christ. Now I don't know, I don't know what you do when you come up there's a lot of discussion in the church world about about communion and about uh, about whether it's redemptive or not and whether you know a lot of stuff like that but i'm going to tell you what we used to go the church we used to go to a long time ago there was a period of time and these numbers don't mean anything they really don't mean anything to me the church was about 600 and during the period of time the church grew from about 600 to 1,000 there's numbers. It's not significant to me. I really don't care. But it was during this period of time. And during that period of time, I know I was, and a lot of the people there, we had some amazing preaching, and we were really reading God's word. And I mean, it was just, you were living God's word through your life experience, which is really how you do it anyway. And it was so real. I personally made a promise to God. I used to you know, I used to be one, you know, you ever see where people didn't, and I'm in the churches, we were part of, Becky, you know what I'm talking about. You you didn't go up to the altar because if you went, on altar, went up to the altar, it was an admission of guilt somehow or another. You'd have people come up and pray with you, asking you what's wrong, and how can I pray for you, and beating you on the back, and all that kind of this and that stuff, you know, whatever. I loved the church where we went because we had the freedom that, and I made it, I made up my own personal constitution that whenever God moved on me through the word, and you know, I would tell you, I told you this before, Mike, when I would read, and I don't mean to sing you out, but I did tell you this. But I told you before that when I would read the, the passages, you know this too, I'd read, a past, I'd read the sermon's title and the sermon text, and my heart would get blessed before preaching even started because it was like I knew what was coming down the tracks. And I would just sit there and just, I, when I get blessed, I kind of laugh. <laughs> I just kind of get a giggle like that because it's just, I'm so happy inside. And I was just I I'd just, I'd just sit there and just laugh, and maybe a tear or two start running down my face because I just knew what was coming. And I made a decision that I would, whenever God moved on me, that I would, that I would just go and put myself. We had an altar similar to this where I'd just come up and kneel like that and just lay down over. I'd just say, "Lord, here I am." It's the same thing I said years ago, but I just do. I'm here. I'm reciprocating. By offering you the nothing that I have. That you would be Lord over everything. And I'm going to tell you what. It started where on Sundays there would be times where there would be 40, 50 people up there. And it was like the same things kind of going on. It was so exciting. It was one of the most most exciting experiences in my life just being part of a church. I'm going to tell you what. And God was doing stuff. I'm gonna tell you what. What I can tell you that I think that all of this brings us to, and you know, you're talking about your wedding and yours and your marriage. And I tell you, well, I talk to my, well, I talk to our kids all the time about God and about the importance of walking with Him in your daily experience in your life. And we we make that a part of what we do. But I can tell you that one of the most important things, that the way that we live this out, is by, is by, is by going beyond the thing we struggle with to the point of saying, here's me and everything. I'm giving all of it. Lock, stock, and barrel to you to the point there is nothing left. I remember, I remember I'm going to tell you a little story about what I did. And it's odd how when you come to Christ and you give yourself to him and when you get serious with Jesus, I'm talking when it's serious. I'm not talking about going to church and, you know, which is great. I'm not talking about you know, going to Sunday school and doing all the stuff, singing songs. I'm talking, about, I'm talking about when you totally, completely give everything to Christ, you would think people would be pretty excited for you, but they're not. They're not. And in fact, in my family, it wasn't, it kind of started off a lot of times of not so good. It was really rough. Well, I prayed for him. But it, it was odd. I, th- I, th- I, th- I told my mom, I said, I mean, I think I would be better off if I just went and hung out with bars and chased women. You'd like it better. It just seemed odd to me. When you really get serious with Jesus, that's what happened in Jesus' day. And I was at work one day and I was reading in a psalm and I read this verse in the King James. It says, he who trusted in the Lord happy. is he." I was, on the, I was sitting on a pile of logs in an oil field eating my lunch. I was sitting there and I opened up my little Gideon New Testament. I a little red one I opened up and I read up reading in Psalms that he who trusts in the Lord happy is he. And I'm going to tell you what, I got so blessed because I was so
1: <laughs>
0: ridiculously happy. It just kind of transcended all that stuff. and I didn't have anything left because everything. everything is his. Me, my heart, all my things, all my stuff. I honestly think what we have been invited to is not to come up and tell God that we're perpetually sorry for all the stuff that we're struggling with nonstop, but we are being invited to completely reciprocate by offering us nothing to Jesus. I, I, say, that, I say that because the disciples, when I referred to them talking about who's going to be on the right hand of left, Jesus said, can you drink this cup? They're thinking following jesus is going to give them something it's going to benefit them somehow or another and jesus said that you will become a he who is greatest of all is servant of all not caring where you sit not caring what you get not caring what it benefits you not caring how good it makes for you or what position or what name it gives you but completely giving everything to him To me, it's right along the line with what Jesus is talking about when he says to Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. And he said, I want you to do that for each other. To me, a communion is about just being in the presence of God, and here is all of it. I want to read one other. I want to end with this so you all can get ready for music, but I want to, whenever you, this is from Philippians. Now, I know that in Sunday school class that you all did Philippians here just not long ago. from philippians chapter 2 and it's talking about our attitude paul is talking to us about our attitude but he uses something where he talks about jesus and jesus's character jesus's attitude now i sometimes wonder if when we read this we don't look at this and say wow this is amazing that jesus was like that But i'm gonna tell you what that's not what paul's saying Paul said, this should be your attitude. This should be how we are. Listen, listen to these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Imagine that. I mean, it just blows me away, you know. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. I want to tell you, what, Jesus, Jesus became nothing. He is our example. We have been invited to that same attitude. Well, Jesus didn't ask us to come and say, okay, well, I'm going to, want to ask you to volunteer to be put on the cross physically, but I'll tell you what, he's asking us to come remember what he's done and to put our, get some, reciprocate by giving our lives. Yeah, it's... When we give everything, there's nothing left, and I'm gonna tell you what—that's when Christ is glorified. Bill, you were talking about Ephesians, you know about the husband and wife and about being like, you know, if you read further, you know he was right about that. I mean, I love that because it's it's reversible in both ways. And then when it gets farther, talking about employees or slaves and slave owners, and it says slaves employees, most of us are one of those employees or slaves do your job not to be noticed by men but that Christ may be glorified
1: <laughs>
0: it's easy to do when there's nothing you're connected to and, every, and, every, and it's all about Jesus and that's what we've been called to that's what the, to me that's what, that's what the cup is, that's what the Passover is and this song
1: the morning But give me Jesus.
0: take communion for granted let us let us always understand
1: that it's that it's our hearts that you're interested in
0: and help us to meet you there uh, in humble reverence giving all that we've got we love you it's in jesus wonderful name we pray amen